What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had... The, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock, all these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, he, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text WINE to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the, and the American way. Sean, I'm hearing my own voice back in my ear. you got to figure out how to stop that. Uh, it's Anyhow, we're going to have a fascinating show today. And uh, Louise and I are, as I mentioned last week, Louise and I are in Orlando and we're at a seminar that is being taught by uh, Dr. Richard Bandler and uh, John Laval and Kathleen Laval about neurolinguistic programming, NLP. And we're going to get to that later in the program. But obviously the big news is that last night Donald Trump made public a decision that he had probably made... You know, probably debated it in fact, when he put Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, although I suspect that Gorsuch was kind of a done deal that was given to him by Mitch McConnell, and Mitch McConnell said, this is what you're going to do. It's got to be this way. Uh, but uh, the, the, the simple reality is that Brett Kavanaugh, back in 2008, in uh, one of the law journals, uh, no, it's not fixed, uh, in one of the law, law journals um, argued and I will, I will read it to you. Uh, he said, having seen firsthand, now keep in mind, 
this this guy, Brett Kavanaugh, he was one of the lawyers who helped John Roberts, who's also on the Supreme Court, organize the uh, legal case that was taken to the Supreme Court in 2000 by George W. Bush's lawyers arguing that they should ignore the results of the election in Florida or that they should continue with blocking the recount that the Florida Supreme Court had required. These, these are guys who claim that they love states' rights, right? And this should tell you everything you need to know about Brett Kavanaugh. Although we'll get to just a minute how he says lawyer, you know, uh, Trump can't be sued or indicted or any of that kind of stuff, which is what everybody's focusing on. But I think this is actually the most important part, and and what you need to know about, and what and what you know America should be knowing about, is that uh, the argument, you know, that that, that what the, for those of you who were not like paying attention to politics in December and January, November, December and January, throughout the whole month of November and December, and I think this got resolved very early in January. No, no, I, I, it, might, it must have been in December, but whenever it was resolved. Florida, the, the vote in Florida was 536 votes that George Bush won by, according to the, quote, official vote. And then they discovered that in Volusia County, which was using electronic voting machines, the votes for Al Gore as they were being reported throughout the day, were going down. I don't mean George Bush was getting more votes. I mean the number of votes for Al Gore was actually decreasing. It's a, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, according to the voting machines, Al Gore had 22,000 votes. By 1 o'clock, he only had 16,000 votes. Well, that's impossible, right? You can't vote negative. And, but that's, you know... <laughs> That's what happened. So that was in Volusia County, number one. Number two, you had the, the uh, down in Broward and in, in much of the state, you had these punch card voting that was very, very badly designed. It was very confusing. But not only that, you had these, it, 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 to punch it out, you had to punch out this little piece of paper. And by the way, um, you know, feel free to call on any topic you'd like. I'm just I'm going to open the phone lines here, 202-808-9925, because um, it's just going to be you and me for the first hour and a half. But I want to give you my take on this. I'd love to get your thoughts on it, um, on this, on this whole issue of the Supreme Court. So they had these, you know, they had the hanging chads, pregnant chads, pimpled chads, dimpled chads. What that meant was you had this little push pin that you had to push through the 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 paper that said who do you want to vote for, and underneath that was this cardboard card, and you would pop the little pre-punched square out of the card. Well, some of them didn't pop all the way, so they kind of dangled. Some of them only pushed, but they didn't pop it. So those are called dimpled chads or pimple chads, and uh, so you had hanging chads and you had you had the, the you know the dimpled chads, and so the machine that they would feed these cards through to count them got all clogged up because of the pimpled chads in particular and the hanging chads, and and on some of them there was also a place for writing at the very bottom where you would actually write it on the cardboard thing, and so some people would like punch Al Gore, and then down at the bottom where it said president, they would write Al Gore, or George Bush, for that matter. And so the decision was made in different counties whether or not to even count those ballots because they won't, quote, weren't, quote, quote, properly filled out. Now, none of this even considers the fact that just three months before the election, George, Jeb Bush, George Bush's brother, had ordered Kathleen Harris, or Catherine Harris, the Secretary of State, to remove 80,000 people from the voting rolls in the black neighborhoods in, around Miami. So, you know, the Florida vote was totally screwed up. So when it came in at 536 votes for George Bush, that was so close to the margin of error that the Florida Supreme Court said, there has to be a recount. It's only a reasonable thing. It's only a logical thing. There has to be a recount. Tom DeLay was the Speaker of the House at the time, in the U.S. House of Representatives, one of the most corrupt speakers of the House ever. He had literally had guys sitting in his office day trading on inside information. And everybody in Tom DeLay's office was getting rich. Day trading, they would know which stock was going to go up and which stock was going to go down, particularly with defense contractors because they knew which contracts were going to be assigned and when. These guys got insanely rich. So Tom DeLay had, a, had his crew, a bunch of his employees, you know, and, 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 and lobbyists who were with him, fly down to Florida, 
where they were doing the recount that the Supreme Court of Florida had ordered in this giant room, and people were looking, and you had a Democratic observer on one side, a Republican observer on the other side, and you had a vote counter in the, in, who was actually you know, an employee of the state who was looking, uh, you know, or, or somebody who had volunteered. I mean, these are the people who volunteered to help, help with elections. You know, they have different titles in different states, but um, basically, the, you know, the election helpers. And they were looking at these ballots and going, okay, you know, is this, uh, you know, is this really, does this guy intend, you know, the, the big debate, intent of the voter. Did he intend to vote for George Bush or Al Gore? Because there's just a pimple here or a dimple on the chat. Or did he intend to vote for Al Gore? Because Al Gore is punched, but he also filled in the name, which is not the way you're supposed to do it. So should we go by the intent or should we go by the rules, which say that you have to do, you can't, if you fill in a, 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 fill, you know, a, a write-in name, then you, you know, theoretically, if it was different from whatever you punched, then you just throw the ballot out. So there was this huge debate about this. And the Supreme Court of Florida said, we're just going to redo it, and here's the rules. We're going to do it based on the intent of the voter, so you're going to actually count those people that you threw out. And it might have worked for Bush's benefit or for Gore's. And, you're going, you know, and, and, and we're going to figure out what happened in Volusia County. And you know, there were a few other abnormalities and anomalies that had happened in Florida. We're just simply going to recount the vote. It's going to take a month or so, but that's okay. We'll have it done by Christmas time. The new president doesn't get sworn in until the first Tuesday in January. We're in good shape. And John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh went to Florida to help teach Al Gore, uh, excuse me, George Bush's lawyers. See, these guys, uh, John Roberts and, uh, had, had clerked for Scalia, as I recall. And I'm pretty, no, no, John Roberts had, had clerked for uh, Rehnquist, who was then the Chief Justice. And and Brett Kavanaugh had, had clerked for Anthony Kennedy, who was on the court. So these two lawyers who, who had worked for the two, you know, two of the top Supreme Court justices, the, the, the chief justice and the swing vote, went to Florida to teach the lawyers what kind of language to use to influence Rehnquist and Kennedy. And this n weirdly never came up during the hearings for John Roberts. I mean, we know it now. And I don't know if it'll come up during the hearings. And frankly, it's the kind of partisan thing that everybody tries to stay away from when they're all trying to behave very nonpartisan. But I think number one, there was the payoff. Then number two, Brent, uh, Brent Stevens, or Brent Kavanaugh, excuse me, uh, wrote this thing. He said, this is, this is from the Law Journal in 2008 that he actually wrote. He said, having, but before I read this, just to close the point that I was just making, this guy is partisan, right? I mean, you know, somebody who considers themselves an impartial judge or a lawyer doesn't go down and help George Bush hack an election, basically. And this guy did. So the Republicans are like, of course, right? I mean, this guy, you know, we'd love this guy. So you got that. Then he writes in the Law Journal back in 2008. He writes in this Law Journal, because he worked with Ken Starr to impeach Bill Clinton. That's how partisan this guy is. And then in 2008, after it's all over, and after they lost, keep in mind, they lost, he writes, having seen firsthand how complex and difficult that job is, he's talking about being president of the United States, I believe it vital that the president be able to focus on his never-ending tasks with as few distractions as possible. The country wants the president to be, quote, one of us, end quote, who bears the same responsibilities of citizenship that all share. But I believe that the president should be excused from some of the burdens of ordinary citizenship, in other words, following the law, and not being prosecuted when you break the law, while serving in office. Now, if you're Donald Trump, and you know that you've been, and I don't even want to give a post-hypnotic suggestion to that. Just think about Donald Trump. And he's looking at, you know, this dozen or two dozen uh, judicial nominees that the Federalist Society, you know, the, 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 the right-wing think tank that was organized as a result of the Powell Memo in 71 and largely funded by the Koch brothers and a bunch of other, you know, the Scaife Foundation and other right-wingers. 
He's looking at these judges that Republicans have to choose among because these are vetted by the billionaires. And he sees that there's this one guy who has said presidents shouldn't be able to be questioned or indicted. He's known that he was going to have Brett Kavanaugh for probably since since Neil Gorsuch. Anyhow, pick up your calls on the way back. Stick around. We'll, we'll be right. We'll be right back. Tom Harvin here with you. And uh, let's see here. Let's pick up some phone calls. And let's start out with Denise. It's hard for me to read my computer here. It's just not quite as big as it normally is. In Clinton Township, Michigan. Or is it, is it Denise or it's Denzel? Desi. Desi. That's <laughs> a guy. Desi. I'm sorry. I, the type on my screen is just little teeny tiny. I got I to gotta figure out how to make it bigger. In fact, I, I think I know how to do that. So, anyhow, go ahead and talk. What's up? There we go. Hey, Tom. I listen to you every day. I'm an Uber driver, so in between runs, I listen to you. Um, I um, I heard you earlier talking about the uh, the uh, election uh, debacle in Florida. I was around during that right. time. But to my estimation, this happened two more times. I mean, the last two presidential elections, as far as I'm concerned, have been very suspicious. Um yeah, At this I point, agree. I have no faith in the electoral system, uh, vote, um, the voting machines or anything like that. Um, I know that if we're going to do anything, it's going to have to be overwhelming. There's going to have to be no doubt yes. about the fact who won. But yeah, and that's, that, and that's the thing, Desi, is that if, you know, this is why Democrats won't talk about it. And, I, you know, I've, I've told this story on the air many times, so I won't go into great length, but I've had this conversation uh, with a number of people, members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress. And, uh, you know, while Mark Pocan and Bernie Sanders agree with me, and they will talk about this on the air, there's a whole bunch of Democrats who are afraid that if we say, you know, these voting machines are not secure, our tabulators are not secure. It, you know, we know that, the, that for example, the Russians, uh, you know, successfully hacked into 15 or 20 of them in the last election, different states, and or whatever it was, they didn't do anything apparently, according to the. But but you know well, we've got computer that. scientists I who can. I really don't believe that. Nobody's given us any proof that it that that they did still vote. How would you? How can you yeah. prove a negative? I know, yeah. and but but the but the but the message we have to deliver is number one, it's not safe and secure. But number two, exactly what you said, and you said it so well. We have to show up in overwhelming numbers. Forgive my interrupting you. Go ahead. But but I I, I look at it like this. We this is. This America that we're living in, um, I have friends that voted for Trump, and I actually spent the 4th of July with them, and they have a block. I mean, it's, it's a serious, I, I just can't get through it. It's like Obama, Hillary, Obama, Hillary. And yeah. and they will yeah. not acknowledge that the Russians have influenced our, our elections. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it could have been the Russians. It could have been the Republicans, too. It could have been some billion-dollar corporation. We need to get these damn things out of our out of our electoral system. Desi, thanks a lot for the call. You're we listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. I'll be back with more of your calls right after this break. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush, or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never th- used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, it's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim. It's lightweight. It's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a, you know, a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, be, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. 
getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. So in my enthusiasm, I, I neglected to just kind of wrap up the story or finish the story about, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, John Stevens, and uh, now, two, you know, assuming Kavanaugh gets, a, 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 you know, a, a green light from the Senate and, and, and gets sworn in, um, two justices who helped George W. Bush become president. The way that happened was that the Supreme Court intervened and stopped the recount in Florida. So a consortium of news agencies, the New York Times, the Associated Press, and uh, uh, the company that owns USA Today, uh, these, and, and there might have been one other uh, company that was involved in this, they took all of the ballots, all the physical ballots from Florida, brought them up to New York in a, in a semi-truck, and took a full year to count them. And in November of 2001, which unfortunately was about a month after 9-11. The New York Times published a piece. Now keep in mind, Al Gore's original lawsuit at the, at the Supreme Court in Florida was to simply recount three counties, Broward, Dade, and one other county. And um, the, so the headline was, if Al Gore's lawsuit had succeeded, he still would have lost, which was true. But if you counted the whole state, which is what the Florida Supreme Court had ordered, Al Gore won Florida by any measure. It's right there in the New York Times article. They buried it in the 17th paragraph, but it's right there. Now, why did they bury it? Well, I think it was Salzberger, the publisher, later said, you know, we buried that because we didn't want George Bush to be seen as an, as an illegitimate president a month after 9-11. The country was in a crisis. So uh, just to finish this up, and then I'll get back to your calls because there's a lot of people who want to weigh in on this. Number one, Kavanaugh is, a, is a clearly a partisan Republican and that's what they want on the court. They don't care about judicial temperament and all this kind of crap. They want a partisan Republican. Number two, he thinks that presidents should not be indicted, prosecuted, or even questioned while they're in office. Although, you know, to give him some credit, he said Congress should pass a law saying this. And there is no law right now. So we're not sure how he'll rule on this, but I think we've got a good indication. And I'd bet 50 bucks that that was one of the questions that when Donald Trump sat down with him in private said, hey, you wrote this in the Law Journal in 2008. Do you still believe this? And Kavanaugh said, yeah, I sure do. And bang, that was when the decision was made. And number three, Kavanaugh told us last night when Trump introduced him, twice, as I recall, in his little thank you speech, that he was Catholic. Now, I've got nothing against Catholics. The court, weirdly, there's not a single Protestant, I believe, there's not a single Protestant on the court. They're all either Catholics or Jews. But, um, and, you know, nothing wrong with Catholics, except that, by and large, you know, the Catholic Church, officially, Catholic doctrine, is that abortion should be illegal. Abortion is illegal in Vatican City. Of course, Vatican City doesn't have any women who are citizens. But, you know, it's illegal there. Uh, you know, it, Ireland, I, you know, I remember the, the, you know, they had the big vote and, and just, you know, recently legalized abortion. Um, so, but, you know, by saying I'm Catholic, my guess is what he was shouting out to the right-wing evangelical Protestants and the, and, the, and the fundamentalist Catholics is that he would vote the way that everybody thought it should be voted on about abortion. So, anyhow, that's my take on all that stuff. Let's get back to your calls. Uh, Brandon in Orlando. Hey, Brandon, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, kind of to relay there on Roe versus Wade, with uh, precedent has been talked a lot about in the news. And I uh, just want to get your opinion. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. Isn't pre I mean, in my opinion, because the Supreme Court does get cases wrong, uh, for example, internment, shouldn't each case be looked at separately as it comes up? Or what's your opinion on precedent? I don't know what you mean by shouldn't each case be looked at separately. Well, I, I, I mean, I, you I know, guess if, Roe, if, if abortion does come back up to the Supreme Court, they, right. uh, I guess they were talking about, you know, they should just go ahead and uh, acknowledge the previous ruling on it. Uh, right. 
based on precedent. So, well, which is largely the what they've done. Although they've dialed back some of Roe's protections, they've by and large, you know, established that um, uh, given those protections. But the uh, my take on Roe v. Wade is that the court shouldn't have made that decision. I, I don't think that, and and I'm pro-choice. But I think that by making law, I mean, the court actually decided there are three trimesters in a pregnancy, according to the current state of knowledge of science. And we're going to set up different rules for each trimester. That's the job of the legislature. This was in 1973. I, I was alive and an adult in 1973. And I can tell you what was going on. In 61, the birth control pill was legalized. In six, by 63, the birth control pill was widespread across America. In 65, you had the Connecticut versus whatever his name was, Griswold or Cunningham or whatever it was, which, which ruled that no state could ban birth control uh, you know, in, in people's homes. Because at that point in time, it was illegal for a, even a married couple to have a condom in their home in Connecticut. So all this stuff had changed. The America was in the midst of what was referred to as the sexual revolution. And, and in, that, in that context, in 73, we were having this debate now about abortion. And, and it worked its way up to the Supreme Court. And in my opinion, had the court not ruled in Roe v. Wade, we may still have a couple states where abortion is illegal, but the states around, just like you have some states where gun control is really intense, like New York, but you got, or let's say Chicago, but right next door in Indiana, you can drive, you know, 40 minutes from, from downtown Chicago to Indiana and buy guns at the gun store right on the border, you know, because Mike Pence made them really available. So there's no doubt in my mind that within a year or two at the very most, and yes, I realize there would have been some women who died in the process of it, but I think that we're, you know, we wouldn't be in this mess right now that by the Supreme Court making law, which there's nothing in the Constitution that gives them the authority to do that. By the Supreme Court actually making law in Roe v. Wade, just like they made law in, in Dred Scott, just, you know, and, and, and a number of others, by the way, since, since they acquired for themselves the power to do this in 1803 in the Marbury decision. By making that law, rather than us having congressional hearings, expert testimony, the public weighing in, people running for election and winning or losing based on the issue, of, of whether abortion should be up to the states or whether it should be a federal issue or, you know, what, and whether it should be legal or illegal. Because we did not go through that normal, Amer all-American legislative process. The Supreme Court did it instead, without authority and without right. In my opinion, that decision was not wrongly decided in as much as I think, you know, abortion should have still been illegal. But I think that by 74 or 75, knowing the way the sexual revolution was going, and people were getting pregnant because everybody was getting, having sex with everybody. And the birth control pills didn't always work in the first five or six years. They were just figuring the technology out. That I'm of the opinion that rapidly those laws would have been struck down by the Congress. And that would have short-circuited all the debate. You would not have had all this 20, 30, 40, however long it's been since 1973, you know, wars basically going on um, in the United States about about whether or not, you know, Roe v. Wade should be overturned and all this other stuff. So, um, you know, part of me thinks that even if this court overturns Roe v. Wade and says it's up to the states they can make it illegal, that might, in, a, in the way that I just described, actually be a good thing. But I'm not in favor of it. But, you know, the outcome could be good. Back to you, Brandon. Well, that's, that's, I, I kind of, that's a good point, and I, and I agree with that. So uh, with that, I'll let you go. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome, Brandon. Thanks a lot for the call. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Dave, what's on your mind? I want to try to make my point um, based on something you just said. You just said that the sure. um, we don't really know who interfered in the election. It could be Russia. It could be Republicans. Now, and you're right, but how this ties into the selection of Kavanaugh is there's this guy, uh, Leonard Leo. He's in the Federalist Society. He's been very influential in picking these uh, conservative justices for the Supreme Court. Right. He's well, the main guy there who does this. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they've already, um, conservatives have already protected him by saying any criticism of him is related to religious bigotry. Now, you know, because right. he's, he's Catholic and he's a knight, a, a knight of Malta guy. Now, none of this really matters, his religiosity. What matters is Le uh, Leonard Leo recognized that our society is becoming more liberal. 
right? And 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 and, yep. and because our society is majority liberal, the only way to stop what he sees as descending into some sort of biblical sin is to have a unified executive. Um, the unitary executive theory that was you know put out by George Bush and also uh, fundamentally believed by Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, it goes back to Hamilton. Yes, and, and what but this will do is going. stop our descent into sin as a society, right? Well, the problem with this is, all right, their, their hearts, you can argue their hearts are in the right place trying to protect us all, right? But the problem is uh, we become illiberal. We're, 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 we, all right, the, Russia is opposed to our national interest because they can, um, they can provide for an illiberal government around the world. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it. Look well, they're always going to put their own national interests ahead of ours, as is China. I mean, China may have hacked our elections, too. We need to find this out. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I want to know the damn, I want the damn investigation to finish. Yeah, yes, and I'm just trying to say what the consequences are. Our national interests are eventually going to come into conflict, and we will have no tacit moral imperative. All right, it will be a straight up. All right, if we're supporting illiberal uh, um, policies around the world, like in Iraq, uh, that's what Muqtada al Sadr is complaining about. He's saying America right. is trying to pervert their election, what, which his block, his political block, clearly won. Okay, now we, if we support right. illiberal. By the, by the way, for people who don't know what you're talking about, if I may, very very quickly, Dave, Muqtada al Sadr is the Shia Shia uh, mullah who ran uh, a large chunk of downtown Baghdad that fought with American soldiers for years and years and years. Go ahead. Yes, if we plant our flag with an illiberal regime, not a democratic republic, if we do not promote our ideals and we plant our flag with that regime, and Russia and China plant their flag with opposing regimes, we are, it's going to be a straight-up slugfest. It's going to be numbers. It's going to be, um, you know... Um, just firepower. What's the it's that you're talking about in the United States or in Iraq? Because that's already happening in Iraq. Well, I mean, you often talk about Iran. That's, you know, and, and I, I tend to agree with you. It's going to happen in Iran or North Korea, perhaps. But the bottom line is we are going to come into conflict with, um, you know, the, the, the states that are um, within the sphere of influence of, of, of the Shanghai Cooperative. And we're, we're illiberal. We have no fundamental... So bring this back to the Supreme Court, because that's our topic here, Dave, yeah. and that's where you started. I'm sorry. With Justice Kavanaugh now in the unitary executive, which I guarantee he's going to support, we no longer have a democratic republic. We're some sort of hybrid. Uh, we are some, in my opinion, right. we are some sort of hybrid, and it is dangerous, because in a straight-up slugfest, I don't think we can beat the Shanghai Cooperative. They just have more numbers and more yeah. firepower. Yeah. But, I, I, I don't disagree with you, Dave, and that's... Uh, another piece of this puzzle. It's it's an important one. Thanks for the call. Wayne in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Wayne, what's up? Oh, hey, Tom. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I have a Mueller-Kavanaugh question. I know you're really good at seeing relationships. Uh, naturally, those of us who are watching are disappointed in the pace of the Mueller investigation. Uh, he's seemingly the best check to Trump's exercise of power. So if the Mueller investigation weren't so mired in delays, so wouldn't we be now focused on indictments and charges rather than on North Vietnam or Brett Kavanaugh or further tax cuts for corporations? Um, I don't think so, Wayne. I think that we need to, I think that everything is going to change when Mueller's uh, report came out. And a lot might change when Mike Flynn starts singing. But we'll see. It's a good question, Wayne. Thanks a lot for the call. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with more of your calls. It's coming up on 10 minutes before the hour. Stick around. Hi, Tom Hartman here with you, and uh, so happy to be with you. And in the studio, in the studio, <laughs> in this hotel room that we're broadcasting from here, at uh, the Sheraton Four Points in Orlando, where we're doing a seminar with Richard Bandler and John and Kathleen Laval on uh, neurolinguistic programming, is Scott Carter, who is a friend of the show. He's been on the program before. Uh, Scott, in his uh, his day job, is uh, working as the executive producer of the Bill Maher Show, and uh, he's also a playwright who has a play that has played in how many cities? Now? Nineteen. Nineteen cities around the country, and the, na and the name of the play is? The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy, Discord, 
and people call it Discord. Yeah, and it's brilliant. And you're working Thank on a you. new play, too. Thank you. I've got a new play also. Yeah. yeah. So what caused you to think, hey, I ought to go to Orlando, try, fly across the country, and learn about neurolinguistic programming from uh, this guy that some people say is like a madman? I Madmen do not uh, turn me off. Uh, madmen test my own thoughts, and I often find myself seeking things that are outside of my comfort zone. And on real time, we do 35 new shows a year. So it means we have a break in the summer, and this year it's July, and then we have a break between around Thanksgiving to around Inauguration Day, January 20th, which is also Bill Maher's birthday. And so often I will take um, a leap into something I don't know about at all that's going to uh, challenge my preconceptions about me, and then hopefully it will uh, give me something of lasting value that I'm going to come back to the office with when we next resume taping or when I'm working on a new play. And it's going to give me some additional skills, both in my work and in my life. Yeah, which is great. I mean, a lot of continual growing throughout our lives. I mean, and, a, and all of these don't need to be successful for you to have felt good about doing it. Hmm. So, for instance, the, the, when the Beatles went to India, uh, John Lennon was turned off by the Maharishi eventually, and, and the song Sexy Sadie originally was, was going to be Maharishi, what have you done, you've made a fool of everyone, and then he chickened out on the White Album and turned it into Sexy Sadie, turned it into Sexy Sadie, but it was still a good thing to do, and he later, before he was shot and killed, said he thought that he had been too hard on the Maharishi, and of course, meditation has been something that's continu that continued for George for the rest of his life, mm -hmm. and actually Paul and Ringo still do it. Let's talk about you. Okay. So you're here doing this workshop. Yeah, and we should note that it's a nine-day workshop, and we are midway through day four, so I'm not quite halfway yet. All right, so we've got about... I don't know, maybe eight minutes here. What are you learning? What, what, what do you what, think? What, what am I... What I am... I wouldn't even maybe use the word learning yet. What I'm being exposed to is a number of different ways to both uh, perceive how people communicate or and how corporations communicate with us and sometimes the embedded language they use by which to get us to buy their product or do what they want or vote for them. So it's things that are coming from the outside world to me. And then what I'm also learning to for or for my consideration um, are techniques by which I may communicate better with other people. So it's so it's both those things. It's from me out and it's from the world in. And I find some of these things, particularly after a night's sleep, after listening to these things all day, I'll find some of them really sticking to me. Like there was one phrase, I think, from the first day of brain grammar, which is something I never thought about and then wrote it down. And that's one of the things I, I thought about. Another thing that stuck with me is when people try to help other people who haven't necessarily expressed a desire to be helped, one of the phrases they use is, well, you're, in your, you're driving your ambulance again, and I am a veteran driver of an ambulance, and um, try to tell myself it's something that I should stop doing. Yeah, great stuff. So how would you describe NLP? I would describe it as... Uh, an attempt, and I'm saying attempt now because I'm not through all the way through this, but I would say it's, it's an attempt to discover the infrastructure of how the mind works that we might better navigate our interactions with others to, to be communicating what we want and have a better chance of getting it um, and also to be understanding more what people want from us. Yeah. Um at least more than one person in the, in the, in the workshop has commented that uh, Donald Trump, whether he's doing it consciously or unconsciously, and certainly many of the people around him, are using some of these techniques of persuasion. Um, it's kind of the dark side of the force, I guess, but you know, persuasion is persuasion. I'm curious your thoughts on the Supreme Court nominee, on the current state of politics, and if you can tie that back into at least some of the things that you've learned here. Well, there's a quote from the end of War and Peace where Tolstoy has Pierre, the character that's based on himself, say, at, at the end of the day, all great matters are very simple. And if bad men can work together to accomplish their ends, then good men must work together also. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've been aware of from you and from others um, is that 
there is a knowledge of these techniques that has been mastered by people on the political right for decades now. And one cannot, even if one disagrees with these people, one cannot deny their success in owning at this point the White House, the Supreme Court, the House of Representatives, the Senate, and a lot of state houses. Majority. Majority of state houses, and also they have made great inroads into universities. And, and so if people with whom you disagree are using successful techniques that you are not aware of, doesn't that mean that you should become aware of them if you wish to fight them in the marketplace of ideas. Well, this is why I wrote Cracking the Code back in right. 2008 for the 2000, you know, and just in time for the 2008 election, I wanted Democratic politicians, and I, I, would, I gave it to a bunch of them. I'm convinced nobody read it, or not nobody, but, some, you know, and, and yeah, you know, you've well, read that book. In fact, yeah. you, 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 I think you told me you, were, you liked it so much, you started giving, you said you gave it a copy. I bought it for others. <laughs> you gave yes. a copy to Sarah Solomon yeah. or something. Yes, you know. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting you... Um, say that because uh, when I started producing Politically Incorrect before real time, and after about two years of having conservative politicians and, and conservative pundits and journalists, and then also having a lot of liberal celebrities and, and politicians on, I became aware, and this was, this was in 1993. Bill and I started working the week that Bill Clinton was inaugurated for the first time, so it's January of 1993. And I became aware that, that people on the right were so much more willing to do the grunt work to advance their own cause. And one of the generalizations I had after a season or two was that liberals were more convinced that they were morally righteous and did not have to have their facts straight. So for instance, in these days, and that was before Fox News, it was before the internet, before MSNBC, um, a lot of conservatives we had on were doing things like like writing newsletters and sending out two pages or four pages That's at Richard a time. Vigory's whole thing. Richard Vigory, uh, uh, Paul Weirath, uh, uh, Emmett Terrell, uh, American Spectator. A, a lot of these, so they weren't looking at this to be something glamorous, or it wasn't even necessarily something that was bringing them a lot of money. It was they were so committed to these ideas that they were willing to to work day and night for them, and train a lot of other people who were following in their footsteps. And now, of course, with uh, the proliferation on the right of talk radio, of Fox News, uh, and of, of all sorts of websites, there are many more ways for these people to get out that message. And I feel like there are people who I... And, and, and one more thing, which is after doing 25 years of shows with, with Bill, where we've had We've had as many conservatives on the program as liberals, almost as much, maybe 40% conservative. A lot of them are my friends. A lot of them are people I really enjoy talking to afterwards, though I may not agree with them. And I appreciate when they can be, first of all, changing my mind. I really appreciate that. But also I, I appreciate when they've just challenged me to be strong about the ideas that I've had for a long time and maybe haven't dusted off the supporting ideas by which I've held these ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so um, so I've come to have this begrudging admiration, but I also think it's like I, when I was in high school, I was a debater. Well, to be in debate, you had to learn rhetoric, you had to learn logic, you had to be willing to do work in evidence. And if, you, if the team you were opposing did a better job than you did, they would win the debate and you would lose, even if you were on what you considered to be the right side. So being right isn't enough, and especially in a, in a democracy where the job of someone who wants to gain elective office is to persuade enough people to come to the ballot box and vote for him or her, you have to learn to be persuasive. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that you're learning here. That's... I'm, I'm, it's interesting. I, I feel like I'm, of the things I've heard so far, they're, they're falling into three categories. One, one is things I already knew that, I'm, that I may be got to intuitively just from doing talk shows for 25, 30 years. Second are things I don't know yet that I'm really interested in working out to see if I do think they're true and I will keep. And then some things that um, I may not keep at all. Yeah, yeah, that's remarkable. Uh, yeah. Richard just dropped by. Richard, you're not going to need the IFB. It's, it's, it's fine. You know. we're, we're hitting a break here. Um, Scott, 
We'll be right back. It's, we're also going to check in with the news in about four minutes. And then at the top of the hour, in 20 minutes, I have a real special treat for you. The whole next hour is going to be with Dr. Richard Gannon. Stick around. We'll be right back. I appeal. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and your and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. There's a lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. We are live from, from Orlando. And uh, this is just a, a, a super treat. Uh, we all are living, breathing human beings here, and we all want to optimize the way that we function, whether it's politically, whether it's economically, whether it's uh, socially, whether it's in our marriages or relationships, uh, whatever it may be. And one of the world's leading experts on all this kind of stuff, and way more, is Dr. Richard Bandler, the co-founder of Neuro Linguistic Programming. He's an absolute, he's an absolute genius. I've, I have been, I, I first started studying under Dr. Bandler, I think about 20 years ago. I had started reading his stuff back in the early 80s. And uh, Richard, I'm so pleased, Dr. Bandler, I'm so pleased to have you with us. Well, it's nice to be here with you. So let's start out with just a, a conversation about what is NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. You and John B and Grinder put this thing back t together back in the Well, we started putting it together. It didn't, it didn't form all at once. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not even what we set out to do. Uh, it, 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 it's really a combination of starting to look at the difference between examining where things go wrong and what works mm -hmm. in terms of human thinking. Uh, Noam Chomsky laid out a set of algor mathematical algorithms that describe the intuitions of native speakers of English. So that, as opposed to grammarians, which are telling you how you should talk, people who are native speaker of language intuitively can recognize well-formed sentences. You go colorless green ideas, it's kind of well-formed, but kind of not well-formed, and you, it mapped out what's a neurological intuition which is a reflection of your neurology and also your learning. And when I started out, there were very talented psychotherapists, and, but they had no idea what they were doing. Their theories didn't make any sense, really. And they, most of their students would just go, oh, they're so intuitive. So I started mapping the intuitions mathematically. When I met John Grinder, he had a much better map with transformational grammar. We put together a set of things that mapped their intuitions to a point where we could predict what they were going to say, and therefore we could train and teach other people to be more systematic about what they did. And the problem was they weren't getting phenomenal results. None of them were. Psychiatrists, psychologists said that everything took forever, it took a long time, and learning really doesn't. And uh, doesn't take a long time. Doesn't take a long time. So I started to find people who changed things and find out what they actually did. You know, that people got fed up with being afraid of heights and overcame it, and, and uh, people who, you know, everything from spelling, anything 
that some people could do and others do to find out, you know, is the difference neurological or is the difference how they're thinking about it? And it turns out in most cases, their ability to learn to do it well was that they didn't think about it the same way. And mapping out that sequence, you know, a simple example is, you know, you can't spell pohonics pohonically. It's a ludicrous system. But yet, there's, you know, all through school, every year I got a new pohonic speller. Mm-hmm. And they show you pictures of words that are very small. I went to a spelling bee and found the person who won the spelling bee, a little 12-year-old girl, and found out she made pictures of words that were this big. Um, six or eight inches tall. Yeah, for it was radio actually listeners. 8 to 12 inches big. Uh, yeah. And then took learning disabled kids and taught them to make big pictures and read them forwards and backwards. And after a while, they built a machine in their head that started looking at every word and encoding a big picture of it so that they could go back and check to make sure that it's right. And then after a while, it starts to happen unconsciously and automatically. Mm-hmm. At first, it's awkward, like I said, and then it becomes automatic. And you develop literally new cortical pathways to support it. That's what learning is. And getting people over fears, you know, you know for years, people were shocked. And there were so many things that, that were being interpreted instead of described. There's a real difference between description and interpretation. And, you know, if a a psychologist goes, you know, you're avoiding things, well, that's his perception of what you're doing. But, you know, if your eyes are looking up, what are you doing? I mean, I always ask people because I find out information. And, you know, we found out accessing cues that when people looked up and to the left, typically about 80, 85 percent of the population is remembering an image as opposed to when they look up and to the right, they're constructing, making up images. And that, you know, these things are neurologically hardwired. There's neurological research where they actually had discovered this and didn't know they discovered it. Mm-hmm. And it has a great application because if you know how somebody's thinking, you can change the kinds of words and make it easier for them to understand. But also you can realize that sometimes there's ways that you're thinking about things that don't work. Like if you make big pictures of scary things, you'll be scared. Whereas if you learn to make little pictures of them, you won't be as scared. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is all very practical, pragmatic stuff. I mean, I, I hear people talk about NLP sometimes, and it's more complicated than I can understand, and I made it up. Uh, <laughs> that, to me, stuff either works or it doesn't work. You know, there are theoretical scientists, and then there are practical scientists. You know, if you make a toaster and it makes toast, it's a toaster. And you can explain why it doesn't, but it still isn't making toast. And all of the models and things that I bought and all the things I teach people in classes are just stuff that works that I've modeled out of other people. I've worked with athletes, golfers, baseball players, football players, mathematicians, architects, everything you can think of under the sun to find people who do something well and train other people to think the way they think and do it. NLP is the study of successful thinking. We are not easy, we're not interested in any way in what goes wrong it gives people problems. We're only interested in solutions. And, it, you know, he said, it, you know, he was talking about that it's a map of your brain. And it's really a map of what you can do with your brain. You may not be doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that finding out how people get phobias is an archaeological dig. Finding out how people get over fears is a set of skills. For example, somebody, somebody comes to you and they say, I've got an elevator phobia. I know a couple of people, actually, who have that. Okay, well, well, of course, elevators are two things. One, it could be claustrophobia, or it could be a phobia of elevators. There's some people who can't get in, and some people who get in, and then they're afraid. It's not the same thing. Hmm. To assume that it's the same thing is just foolish, right? Because if they can go in closets, and, you know, and they're afraid in elevators, most of the time, they won't get into the elevator. And being old-fashioned, I just take them there and find out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my, 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 meeting me is not always the most fun at first. But once I know that, then I can find it. The question is, how are they thinking to create that much fear? Because if, even though it's a learned response, you still have to do the same thing to get the learning to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in order to memorize a, wor- a word or a name, you do certain things. You have to re-engage and re-access it. So they see, they see elevator doors. Because I've walked with people that told me they're horrible elevator phobias. And I said, well, there's an elevator just around the corner. And they become absolutely petrified. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of this course, we're going to bring in giant snakes and huge tarantulas. And if I tell people the day ahead of time, there'll be people that will be terrified. And there's no snake and no spider. Mm-hmm. Now, how is that possible? 
because they're not afraid of snakes and spiders. They're afraid of the idea of snakes and spiders. They make it gigantic. And when you ask them, you know, the spiders in their head aren't this big. They're like lobsters, and they're moving towards them. If you make big pictures of lobster-sized spiders and move them towards you, anybody could scare themselves. And if you teach them how you stop that, there are certain mental procedures by which you stop doing that automatically. You know, one of them is every time you see it, you just white it out like a brightness knob on a TV. We found out that if people step outside of themselves and look at themselves looking at the picture and run it forwards and backwards, that somehow or other it flattens out the neurons so it doesn't run automatically. Hmm. And I didn't even know that till a neurologist told me. He said, you know what that does? Mm-hmm. And I said, no. I said, I know it stops the fear. And he goes, well, he said, you know, be it ever so microscopic, the billions of neurocortical pathways you grow in a lifetime, know which one to do by size. Mm-hmm. And if you flatten out that size by running things backwards, it doesn't happen automatically. You almost have to learn it again. And, you know, the first day of this seminar, I brought up somebody that had a bad memory they thought about every day, had them shrink it down to the size of a dime, flicker it black and white. What happens is the neurocortical pathway runs into a loop, but if you run it and has to keep go on to something that's unimportant, the fear never happens. Well, on the, on the first day of the seminar, another thing I thought was fascinating, we're going to hit a break here, I think, in a few seconds, in a minute or so, but um, you had a guy who uh, had basically his right hand was paralyzed, he had, and something had happened four or five years ago. Uh, something presumably emotionally traumatic that caused him to lose his ability to write with his right hand. And he was trying to teach himself to write with his left hand. You brought him up on stage. You fixed this in less than five minutes. The next day, I'm sitting in a class with the guy. We were, it was the subsequent training with Kathleen. And he just suddenly jumps up and says, I just realized I've been taking notes all day with my right hand. And, and he's like literally cured. And you never even asked him, well, what he, was actually, it? He, he wasn't cured because he wasn't sick. Right, but you fixed, the, <laughs> you fixed his problem. And, and, and you never asked him, was it something to do with your mother? You know, did somebody <laughs> insult you? Were you masturbating too much? You simply asked about the process, right? I mean, how, you know, so I, I was, you know, the whole classroom was sitting there going, holy cow, this guy's a magician. Well, it looks magical. The reason my book was called The Structure of Magic is magic has structure. And, and thinking is the most magical thing of all, if you think about it. And uh, the trouble with magic is, uh, you know, magic can, magic can go awry as easily as it can go well. And so you have to structure it in the right way. That, you know, and especially if you think about, you know, all the post-hypnotic suggestions he'd gotten from doctors, you know, they kept saying that it wasn't in his hand, it was in his head. And, mm-hmm. you know, and they kept going, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with your hand. This is a psychosomatic problem. You'll have to go through years of therapy. Well, that's what he had been, he told and you, he'd he been told, told that. He told me, he said, the doctor said, you should probably just learn to write with the other hand. Right. Uh, that's not a very optimistic view of the world. And it underestimates the power of human beings. Human beings are wanting learning machines. And every time, I have a career of 45 years, pretty much only taking people who have been given up on by somebody or a group of people, or a chain of people. Some of them have been in therapy for 20 years or have been hospitalized for years. And most of the time, I don't see them more than once or twice because I don't bother to find out what's wrong with them. I don't really care how they got so stupid. I, look, I don't look at it as, as something needs to be cured. We learn a lot of great things in our lifetime and a whole lot of stupid things. And, and the way you get smarter is you... Sh- Stop doing the, whatever instigates the stupid behavior. So if you have a big picture and every day you look at it feel bad, you have to shrink it down so it don't make you feel bad. You push it into the distance and put something else in its place, which gets you to behave the way you want to. Yeah. And it's really all about having freedom of choice. We're hitting the break here. Dr. Richard Bandler is with us. He is the co-inventor of neuro-linguistic programming, also known as NLP. The workshop that we're at uh, is from the website purenlp.com if you want to learn more about that. And Richard Bandler's books, of course, you can find everywhere. We'll be back with more of Dr. Bandler. We'll also pick up the calls for him. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's Dr. Richard Bandler here on the Tom Hartman Program, live from Orlando. We'll be back. And welcome back. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, thanks for watching (laughs) us on Free Speech TV. You're on the air with Dr. Bandler. Hey, I may not have firsthand uh, understanding of mercury and, mercury and retrograde, but I am all in on NLP. I uh, read a book by Dr. <laughs> Raymond Moody Jr. back in the 70s called Life After Life. And the last chapter he dedicated to NLP, like a quarter of the book. 
and uh, you guys have already covered some of the points. Uh, I, I know that this is something that car salesmen use either consciously or unconsciously. I'm wondering uh, what's going to happen if interrogators get a hold of this. And uh, I understand people can be talked out of allergies, like bee allergies, food allergies. This science can be proven. I'm just wondering why it hasn't overwhelmed the culture. But my question is, is this something that uh, ADHD or uh, people with autism maybe might have a leg up on? Absolutely. Uh, of course, you know, the big question is, who's doing it? And I recommend you're extremely careful with allergies. Because some allergies will actually kill you. Yeah, some allergies will actually kill you. And that's not an internal dialogue or, yeah. or a picture. Okay. Uh, Paul in Phoenix, Arizona. You're on the air with Dr. Bandler. Thank you very much, doctors. If you don't mind me using that term, Tom, I respect you so much. Um, I'm very new to this NLP stuff, and I'm curious. Do our professions perhaps guide our neural pathways and whatever as an example perhaps I'm, I'm in information technology and data communications and I think of things in in like almost like hardware registers when the doctor mentioned addition I think of it as accumulating you know hardware perhaps so your question Paul circuit. yeah I'm we're going to have a break here in a minute uh, again I'm sorry Tom the, the answer is yes Paul oh, okay yes thank you <laughs> Yes, of course. The way you have to think at work develops a pattern and it begins to organize your life in that way. But it doesn't only have to be that way. And sometimes that's a good thing, especially engineers, because they're taught to think their way through and solve problems. Right. Was, did that as opposed to somebody more perhaps in the arts, more in the creative uh, arena. Well, actually, being an artist is the same thing. Your profession has a tendency to organize your thinking, which could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon what you're doing. Of course. No, then I'm pretty much, it's irrelevant. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Well, it's, it's, it's that it always... That I'm, I'm going to say, say anything that you do all day is going to influence you. Of course. Yeah, of course it is. And, you know... If, if you're listening to music and making distinctions in the studio all day, you're going to pay more attention to the sounds in the world. Even Miles Davis points that out in his book about how music changed depending upon how things were uh, made in the outside world. When garbage cans were metal, music was more clashy and brass. And as things became plastic, it became more subdued and quiet. That's fascinating. Excellent. Yeah, gentlemen, thank you again for a wonderful show. I'm learning a lot. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for the call, and thanks, thanks, for, uh, thanks for listening to us. We'll be right back with more with Dr. Richard Bandler. Stick around. Dr. Richard Bandler. Um, so let's take some more some more uh, calls here. Uh, Rich in Indiana. Rich, you're on the air with Dr. Bandler. Thanks, Tom. Um, uh, it's Rich in Greenwood. Um, I was um, very uh, struck the first time I heard the term harm reduction and the apparent acceptance of that language uh, in medicine. Um, I know it's specifically to do with uh, responding to people who are dealing with um, uh, addictions, and that the force of law not be brought against people with addictions in a further way that would uh, amplify the the harm. But right. so your question, Rich, I, I had it land for me, and this is this is this is what I want to say, please. The acceptance of the term harm reduction versus the first line of the Hippocratic oath, "Do no harm," is is the thing that, that set me off. And I see a huge okay. problem with this concept of harm reduction. I see it as deeply okay, let's, flawed. Let's get Dr. Bandler to respond to that, Rich. Thanks for the call. Richard? Well, uh, I've gotten lots of people to, that, to stop being addicted, and I haven't found that putting them in jail is a helpful thing. Right. Uh, when people take the Hippocratic Oath and it says, do no harm, uh, 
you know, I, I wish that were true about all doctors all the time. But uh, that's, that's the oath. The question in reality is, what, what's the best thing you know how to do? And doctors do the best they know, but we need to educate them better. We need to edu educate everybody better. I'm not done. I'm still learning. And uh, harm reduction, anybody that thinks that harm reduction is a bad thing must be an idiot. We always want to reduce the harm of everything. Uh, uh, and, and I think, you know, that taking drugs that harm your body is not a good idea. But might there be a better term than harm reduction, like, you know, uh, life improvement? Life improvement would be better. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I like that better. Okay. Good choice. <laughs> Dr. You're a smart Bandler. guy, Tom. Dr. Richard Bandler, his new book, Teaching Excellence, the definitive guide to NLP for teaching and learning. Thanks so much for being with us. That, that's NewThinkingPublications.com. NewThinkingPublications.com. There you go. And I'll be back on Thursday. Jefferson Smith will be here tomorrow. We're going to have on uh, John Laval and Kathleen uh, Laval talking about NLP. And we're also obviously going to be talking about politics. And, and uh, so stick around. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.